0: Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's Thursday, which means that tonight we have the exclusive Bulwark Plus live stream. Uh, the whole team gets together and we talk about uh, the news of the day and or the news of the week. Um, if you have not yet signed up for Bulwark Plus, you have an opportunity to do so if you are one of our members. Thank you once again. And I uh, just remember that we will be doing this at uh, eight o'clock Eastern Time. Uh, If you miss it, we do post it. We post it as a podcast and as a video. So um, obviously we'd like you to join us live, but that's actually not required. Uh, There's so much going on. By the way, if you haven't checked out the homepage today, uh, two really remarkable uh, stories. Uh, Number one by Olivia Troy, how the GOP absorbed far right extremists. What started as campaign rhetoric became government policy, and for a few days, a congressional caucus. Really strong essay. And and the lead today is uh, by our publisher, Sarah Longwell. Did we forget our democracy is still under threat? Um, Our guest today is Kim Whaley, who is a contributor to The Bulwark. Uh, First of all, Kim, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it.
1: Oh, I always enjoy it, Charlie. Thanks for having
0: me. Well, you know, it's funny, I actually woke up this morning, before I, I opened up my my phone to see what was leading the bulwark, uh, which has always surprised me. Um, And I'm thinking, you know, it's so weird how we have, uh, you know, how remote January 6th seems right now, that we're not doing anything about it, that it just seems like, I mean, we've talked about it being memory hold, but for some reason it hit me that we had this insurrection aimed inspired by the sitting president of the United States aimed at stopping the counting of the electoral vote and were what 3 months out and it's almost like it didn't happen and even though the president was uh impeached and you had seven United States Republican senators voting to convict him you know the Republican party is still you know, making the pilgrimages down to Mar-a-Lago and kissing the ring and other things. And it's bizarre. So when I opened it up and I saw the Sarah Longwell's speech, did we forget that our democracy is still under threat? I think this is exactly what I was thinking, you know, that that even though the coup failed, it doesn't mean that the threat is over by any means, is it, Kim?
1: No. And as you know, I've been sort of talking about this now for many years, that democracies hanging on by a thread. And a few years ago it seemed like hyperbole. January sixth happened and friends said, Kim, you talked about this years ago. I thought you were a little off the deep end, but now uh it, it was even worse than you anticipated. And frankly, Charlie, I feel like, you know, it's been more blatant in terms of the attacks on democracy since January sixth. That that the whole the 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 sort of yard line has shifted, where we're seeing, and I know we'll talk about this, blatant attacks on voting rights, blatant attacks on First Amendment rights, um, you know, lies, soup to nuts. That clearly, the Republicans have decided that their way of. Uh, sticking with majority minority rule is not to persuade the hearts and minds of people through legitimate policies, um, but to silence people, to to use the racist tropes. And frankly, the Democrats, I'm not sure what they're up to either. Because the last I checked, it's like, what happened to the 9-11 style yeah. commission for January 6th? And it's like, oh, well, the Republicans want to talk about Antifa if we do that. That's so scary. I, I mean, I, I don't understand this. I thought this would be top of the agenda. Listen, we've got to figure out what happened on January 6th. I I, I don't understand it, Charlie. I don't understand it.
0: Well, you know, the Republicans made a very conscious decision not to let Benghazi go. You might recall that. You remember how many hearings hearings they had? It went on and on and on and on. And they just they fixed on it like a limpet. And the, the contrast between the Democrats going, yeah, we just, we just can't do it. We have other things on the agenda. It, it is unfortunate because in just in terms of the impact on, on, on our democracy, you know, every once in a while, I, I, I get uh, people, uh, feedback from folks who say, you know, why do you keep focusing on the people on the extremes? Why, why do you uh, amplify the things that they're saying? Why don't we treat them like they're completely irrelevant? It's For example, you know, the America First Anglo-Saxon caucus or the people at various publications uh, that are really, you know, spinning new theories about why we shouldn't actually support democracy. And the answer is because we've seen over and over again how those strange, extreme ideas do seep into the mainstream. That you think there, you know, it's the drunk at the end of the bar. And we've lived through this. I've lived through this, watching how these crackpot ideas become, you know, more widely accepted and then amplified by people like Fox News, the Tucker Carlson's of the world. And I think we're living through this right now. We know and the Republican Party's inability or unwillingness or maybe cynical willingness to embrace many of these extreme ideas. um, I I think you're absolutely right. It's that all seems to be accelerating. So, you know, the craziest ideas out there, uh, you don't need Donald Trump anymore, to to advance them, the the party the the party is is doing that on its own. I mean, that's that's what's really, uh, you know, remarkable about the yeah. where we're at.
1: You know, I I, I there's a book by um, Stephen Levitsky and Daniel Ziblatt called How Democracies Die. Two yeah. professors, uh, and then I, I've assigned it in my class classes over the years. There are four pillars of democracy, or I should say, elements that they identify. Um, as as telltale signs of functioning democracies falling into something other than that, which in my mind is the Republican platform. It's not a platform for actual democracy. They say rejection of the democratic rules of the game is number one. So, you know, you're starting to erode things like voting by we the people, too. Denial of the legitimacy of any political opposition. Everybody, every, every legitimate point of view on the other side is is wrong is attacked. Um, number three, encouragement or tolerance of violence. January sixth, and then prior to that, four years of Donald Trump stoking violence. And last is readiness to curtail, cur- curtail civil liberties of opponents, including the media, to to demonize the media. And and you know, time after time has uh, historically, Charlie, there have been functioning democracies that have died. And the notion that somehow American democracy. Is immune, immunized from that yeah. by virtue of our birthright is just wrong. We are slipping into something else, and it is it is terrifying. And we need to we need to have that conversation.
0: You know, I should have I should have brought it with me because I started reading a book uh, last night uh, about uh, the eighteen fifties. Um, because it 's come up so often on this podcast and our discussions that, that our time in terms of historical parallels the the decade leading up to the american civil war and there 's a great book and I, I i will I will post it later for people who are going to email me about this it's it 's about the fight it 's called i think it 's called the War before the war and it 's about the fight over the fugitive slave acts and um and then the controversy and how that drove the country you know further apart and there is a discussion in that book. Uh, very explicitly linking it to our current time, how when you completely delegitimize your opponents, when the when the debates become you know cross certain lines, then then you have reached that point of no return. And I, I, I it 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 is hitting me that that we are at a point now where it's hard to see a resolution. And I'm certainly not saying we're going to have a civil war, but. Um, I was thinking about all of that, so I'm just again on, on all of this and why the, the real danger here. And let me let me quote from Olivia Troy's article because I want to get into some of the things that are happening today. But she she writes, and I think this is really powerful. The danger, and this you can find this in the bulwark this morning. The danger of the modern Republican Party is not that it is populist and has nutty ideas about free trade and can't spell. It is not that it favors lib owning cultural warfare over policy and good government. It is not that Trump is a moral Lilliputian and every other significant member of the Republican Party with a handful of exceptions is either a sociopath or a weakling. The danger is that just as the big lie about election fraud became de rigueur for Republican politicians after the election... Explicit white nationalism may become the central motivating principle for much of the party. Uh, Paul Gosar spoke at a white nationalist conference immediately before addressing CPAC. Senator Ron Johnson has begun dabbling in so-called replacement theory, the same theory that led the Charlottesville marchers to chant Jews will not replace us. Tucker Carlson recently invoked replacement theory on his show. And as we saw on January 6th, the party is willing to incite violence when it feels like it's hold on power is threatened. So, so she warns the America Firsters, that Anglo-Saxon caucus, which kind of imploded over the last few days, they will be back. They will be better organized. They will have more followers. They will be better armed. What are we going to do about it? And I said, whoa, that's, the, that's, uh, if that's not an antidote to complacency, I don't know what is.
1: Well, you know, and and you just tick through the four elements I mentioned. I mean, check, yeah. check, 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 and they talk about in the book that there's not a time in American history than all four have been so strongly present as right now. Um, but but uh, you know, the the metaphor I like to use is imagining you know the Constitution like a bridge over a very violent river. I think what people don't understand is if the bridge is the Constitution. Um, we can fight over who's directing traffic, team red or team blue. But if the bridge goes down, we all go down. And I think one of the problems or the mistakes or myths of thinking about this is to is to adhere to it as some kind of partisan team mentality. If democracy fails, it's bad for Americans. It's bad for Trump supporters. It's bad for Republicans. It's bad for everybody. That is a really dark, dark phase that I think no one should want to go to, but we're we're so mired in this team win-lose win, win lose mentality that we're losing the bigger picture. And uh, it is quite dangerous, Charlie.
0: So before we get into all of this, I, I don't know whether you've seen this, this long uh, deep dive in the New York Times Magazine about Liz Cheney, but there's just one thing that jumped out. Have you seen this? It's really good stuff.
1: Yeah, I, uh, I, I saw think. I saw clips of it.
0: Yeah, yeah. This 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 is what's what's great. Um, and uh, it's it's by Don Draper, and there's w- one passage that I really liked. Uh, Lloyd Smucker of Pennsylvania uh, accused Cheney of having a low EQ or emotional quotient. On his way out the door, one congressman remarked, "Quote: I just got to spend four hours listening to a bunch of men complain to a woman." That she doesn't take their emotions into account, (laughs) which I have to say, these guys are such freaking snowflakes. So there's Liz Cheney, but you made us feel bad, Liz. They they can't, they're having a hard time coping with her.
1: It's yeah, I mean gosh, we could have a whole show about that <laughs> about what it's the challenge of being challenges of being a strong w- woman in American society. Um and but there's also the gaslighting there. Uh, just that, that that the experiences of so many people in terms of their emotions being not mattering, you know, compassion being for losers uh, and all of a sudden um you know, heads i win, tails you lose. It's it's really I don't know, yeah. Charlie. You can't yeah. make this stuff up. You no, can't.
0: okay. So since we're talking about uh, the the attacks on democracy, I am I'm really struck by the fact we we talked about this briefly before you and I started this podcast that you know if if, if you turn on Fox News or you listen to conservative media, you know the people like you know Ted Cruz or or Mike Lee as well, uh, you you hear all of this uh, fustian about the need to protect free speech against the cancel culture. But here's the irony that right now the Republican Party is waging a really aggressive two-front war against the First Amendment. I want to see whether you agree. I mean, number one, uh, the the you know the the calls to use the power of the government to retaliate against private businesses that uh, that that have politically incorrect comments, you know, to cancel Major League Baseball, uh, for example, or the push to compel the uh, the internet platforms to carry speech that. That they uh, they don't want to, but then the the other front and which is even less subtle, uh, and I really want to get your views on this. Uh, all of these bills around the country, Republican legislatures and governors, uh, moving hard to go after the rights of protesters. Now they say they're anti riot bills, but they go so far as to create protections for motorists who run into protesters. And he, the, the, here's the New York Times report. Republican legislators in Oklahoma and Iowa have passed bills granting immunity to drivers whose vehicles strike and injure protesters in public streets. A Republican proposal in Indiana would bar anyone convicted of unlawful assembly from holding state employment, including elected office. A Minnesota bill will prohibit those convicted of unlawful protesting from receiving student loans, unemployment benefits, or housing assistance, and in Florida— the heartthrob of the Trumpian right. Governor Ron DeSantis signed sweeping legislation this week that toughened existing laws governing public disorder and created a harsh new level of infractions, a bill he has called the strongest anti-looting, anti-rioting, pro-law enforcement piece of legislation in the country. And the New York Times is now estimating that Republican legislators in 34 states have introduced 81 anti-protest bills This year. So give me your take on this. I mean, they will claim that now this is this isn't about free speech. This is not about the First Amendment. This is about rioters. This is about people who break the law. But the line's fuzzy, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it, the, what you're describing in terms of stripping people of their rights, other rights, by virtue of having been convicted of a protest related offense, I mean, that alone just sounds like punishing people for speech. I mean, that sounds certainly not like a free and fair democracy, something a little darker in other parts of the world. I also did a piece in The Hill recently because I have a daughter in Ohio who, said, mom, do you realize what's going on? In Ohio, there's similarly a package of bills. Uh, One of them would empower police officers to sue people who are protesting from the sidelines if they feel, you know, these are, I'm paraphrasing, but if they experience that as distracting. So the irony, (laughs) and I know, and, and, you know, we've talked, you know, we can talk about qualified immunity, right? Which I do want I know we're going to talk about the Chauvin trial. We're talking about police brutality, so much power in the hands of police. And now we're going to let police sue Protesters. I mean, you know, I just I thought about this this morning, Charlie, and I wanted to just, just as you know, in a meta level, just to kind of clear the decks here and take a deep breath and start from basics. Quote from Justice Brandeis in 1927. He said to explain why this is a problem. Right. He said, "Quote: Those who won our independence believed that freedom to think as you will and to speak as you think." are means indispensable to the discovery and spread of political truth. That without free speech and assembly, discussion would be futile. It is hazardous to discourage thought, hope, and imagination. That fear breeds repression. That repression breeds hate. That hate menaces stable government. That the path of safety lies in the opportunity to discuss freely supposed grievances and proposed remedies and that the fitting remedy for evil counsels is good ones. I, 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 you know, this This discussion is – there's nothing more important in this moment, Charlie, than this discussion. I mean you get your kids vaccinated. You hold their hands when they cross the street. You, you take steps to pay attention to democracy failing in our lifetime, and that's what we're talking about here.
0: Yeah, and that should not be controversial. That's, that's a very eloquent statement of what we had thought was the liberal democratic consensus in this country, at least until recently – all right, let's let's dive into the, the the Chauvin verdict, because I know you have uh, spoken and written very, very extensively about this. You had a piece in The Bulwark, which really made the very provocative point that this trial, e- even though it, I think it resulted in justice, really highlighted uh, the fact that we need to do a better job of having of, of, of trials of police officers. What, what, what did you mean? Where, where do we need to go?
1: Well, I mean, it was kind of an academic approach to the laws, right so this is a multifaceted complex problem that has to do with gun uh, access to guns that make police feel uncomfortable to, to you know screening police officers for narcissism and sociopathy to putting more more people in government that can address mental illness and other sort of uh, you know crises in people 's lives that the police aren 't actually uh, sort of trained to do. However, what my point was is that the criminal laws aren't designed to deal with with po- people in office, right? Or you know, people w- in uniform. So, so when you think about, um, uh, say, murder two in uh, in Minnesota, which required a showing of an assault um, in connection with. In this instance, in connection with something that led to a death, that that can give rise to a murder conviction. Uh, police have access to force that you and I don't. They can use chokeholds. They can they can put people in handcuffs. They can point guns at people's heads. If it were you and me, it'd be very easy for a jury to see the line between what's appropriate behavior and not appropriate behavior. So we're taking laws for civilians and applying them to police officers, and here. Uh, the jury is in a position of saying, "Okay, what's the difference between reasonable police force and and a criminal use of police force?" We haven't; the laws don't don't do that for mm. for, for for police. Just like we saw, and I mentioned this in the piece too, like with the Trump administration, that you know, in the Mueller report. On the question of obstruction of justice, eleven inc- incidents of obstruction that that uh, Bob Mueller identified in Volume Two. But the the conservative and scholarly response to that both, you know, um, and I think it's a legitimate one. It's like, wait a minute, the president is in charge of the executive branch. The president gets to decide who's attorney general. How if he's calling off an investigation, that's part of his power. When does that power get abused? And I think uh, I think the laws need to be tailored to that in addition to you know, qualified immunity, which I know a lot of people don't understand. That's a civil defense to money damages against police officers that was manufactured by the Supreme Court. Again, Congress needs to step in and give some definition of what's reasonable for police officers. We need disincentives in the law for them to violate some standard, some norm that is elusive for jurors, and I think that's a lot of reasons why we don't see these 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 prosecutions and we don't see these convictions is because the law isn't really fit to deal with reasonable use of force that regular people can't have access to. So is that is
0: is is that possible? Because one of the reasons I would think that the law hasn't stepped in is because it, it's very difficult to write a law that will deal with all of the circumstances, all of the judgment calls that have to be made. I thought one thing that was really striking was the way in which the police departments had developed their own internal rules and standards. But those, as you point out, those were not laws. But uh, it's one thing to have the flexibility of having policies and rules. Is, is it possible to have laws that, that are not too intrusive or, or, or not too prescriptive?
1: Well, I think so. I mean, we have them for civilians, right? And we're just talking about them for peaceful protesters Mm -hmm. under the First Amendment. I'm not saying it would be easy. We have it for, you know, 42 U.S.C. 1983, that is the law, the Ku Klux Klan Act that Congress passed, um, that gives private parties a right to sue police officers for violating their, their constitutional rights. And then this qualified immunity doctrine arose as a defense. And what does that mean? Well, basically, the court has said if a police officer is in a situation and doesn't know that an action would violate a constitutional right, that's not obvious to them based on the law. They can walk away and there can be no lawsuit Uh that would move forward. So so I agree this is a tr- tricky thorny thing but we could we could start with really basic things like you know a uh, reasonable police, unreasonable police force is, you know, using force when it when they're when it's evident that somebody doesn't have a pulse. Like, you know, there, there are certain things that we wouldn't need three weeks of trial and m- multiple expert witnesses to, to draw some boundaries legislatively where police know to back off. And then in fairness to them, they have some guidelines that are really clear um, that protect them as well. So let's talk about
0: qualified immunity, because this keeps coming up again and, and again. Um walk walk me through this. My understanding, which is limited, is that qualified immunity is a judge-created standard that has perhaps had some unintended consequences. So qualified immunity does not exist in statutory law. Is that correct? Is it just, that is is it just correct? Some, oh, okay. So, so where did it come from?
1: It came from a series of Supreme Court decisions. As I said, the the way so it, you know, this surprises a lot of people. You can't just walk into a court and cite the Constitution and say, my my rights were violated." You need what's called a cause of action where in the in in most instances with few exceptions under the Constitution, Congress has to say, listen, we we're going to let you use the courts." To enforce your rights. And as I mentioned, that's Section 1983. And that gave private parties the ability to go and sue police officers, primarily because the idea was, notwithstanding all the uh, Reconstruction Act amendments to the Constitution, uh, particularly in the southern states, constitutional rights were not actually being honored by government vis-a-vis primarily people of color. So – So, But then the Supreme Court said, well, you know, it's not really fair to say to a police officer after the fact, you know, um, using uh, that kind of force was a violation of the Constitution when that fact pattern's never come up and been addressed by a court. You know, the court gives meaning to Mm -hmm. the Fourth Amendment, gives meaning to all these, the Fifth Amendment, the First Amendment, the Eighth Amendment. And so essentially they said they've created this test that says unless it was clear that, that what the police officer would do would violate a clearly established law. Those, that's the word clearly established law. They can walk away and the lawsuit goes away. Um, and so that's gotten tightened to mean almost, you know, a, a decision that is on similar facts, like almost the same scenario happened before. So basically if a police officer is breaking new ground and violating constitutional rights, whoa, no one thought of it before to violate it this way, um, they can say, listen, I didn't violate any clearly established right. Therefore, this isn't even just, I don't get as much money damages as I might have. This means it's a complete defense. The lawsuit gets totally dismissed. Plaintiff walks away with zero. And so I think that's part of the, the the push to have congress put a definition on that. Now we've heard some states saying banning qualified immunity, but that's not going to have an impact on federal constitutional claims. That that has to happen at con- the congressional level, not at the state legislative level.
0: Well, that's one of the um so that that actually can be addressed uh, on a statutory basis. But I, you also have this this larger question of and, and I'm I'm really struck by uh after the the you know, the Derek Chauvin case how rare it is for officers to be convicted and i think the number was something like you know one out of 2000 cops that are involved in in you know a a fatal in, encounter that we have created a culture um a mindset that um you know makes holding police officers accountable for this extremely rare. I mean, it's kind of interesting in 2021 to learn that Derek Chauvin is the first white police officer ever convicted for the killing of a black person the, in, in the state of Minnesota, the, the, the very first person. And it's 2021. So this has been going on a very, very long time, and it's deeply ingrained into the culture of the criminal justice system and the police department. So, I mean, that's that's the question. How How do you how do you unwind that? I personally think the Chauvin case might have been um, an interesting turning point because I, and I, I think I've said this before on the podcast. I was really struck by the extent to which that that blue wall of silence uh, you know, came down during this trial.
1: Yeah. I mean, I got the sense that, you know, the, when you mentioned what you're obviously referring to is this idea that police officers testified one after another and kind of closed ranks against Derek Chauvin and said, listen, what he did is not us. And I think it was an important message to the American public. That there is good policing, and I know in my piece in the, for the Bulwark, I cited a 2013 study by the Justice Department that that you know they surveyed whites, Hispanics, blacks, um, and there was no statistically significant difference in the response rates in terms of when they wanted act, you know police support. They had a good experience. I mean, people want good policing, and I think that that uh, that is the that you know defunding the police or getting rid of the police. That's just not a realistic you know that's not a realistic debate and that's not the terms of the debate but i but i think a couple things have happened one is videotaping charlie uh body Huge. cams yeah. uh, i mean they you know it, videos don't lie um they don't forget things they don't make they don't misremember like a witness so that's going to shift things and you know what what we've described i mean i think people are worried and this is this runs throughout the law and the supreme court's decisions around qualified immunity and all these things um, there's a sweet spot because it, you know, most of constitutional law is a balancing act. So on the one hand, you want to say police need to be able to do their jobs. They have to be able to use the force that's necessary to keep the public safe, to investigate crimes, you know, you know, to all of that. On the other hand, they need a disincentive for violating standards and for abusing with that massive power they have. They have power you and I don't have to use force. And it's that sweet spot that the law is trying to get at. The problem is as far as the disincentives, there really isn't anything there. If you if you couple qualified immunity with the problems in, in the law, and then that's why I wrote the piece of the bulwark, this idea that the criminal laws aren't really tailored for for police officers, so prosecutors like it's close to impossible to win that case. They don't bring prosecutors only bring cases they think they can win. Mm-hmm. They just don't bother otherwise. Um, and so, and of course, there's also this blue wall of silence. So, so, so I think a lot of things are happening um, across the country with this. And the message to, to law enforcement is: wait a minute, things might shift for you. Uh, you're you're going. You know the 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 days of impunity. Um, are might be over or shorter, uh, unless of course, as you indicated, we have Republicans in various state legislatures, empowering police, uh, and bystanders. I don't, I don't know that that's a stunning, stunning thing.
0: Well, the the body cams work both ways as well. I mean, they not only uh, make it easier to hold cops accountable, but somehow, you know, sometimes they can they can be used to defend a police officer. Now, people might notice that that we are not talking about the shooting in Columbus, Ohio, right now. And that's because um, I am one of those who's like, hey, could we wait a little bit longer to see how the facts uh, shake out? Because that was one of those classic moments where everybody rushed to judgment now there's body cams out uh pictures out that that make the the scene somewhat more ambiguous I'm not prepared i mean it's this is one of those things where um i you know because the stakes are so high, we ought to be cautious that's somewhat naive, given social media but um, that 's one of those stories where you kind of felt the narrative change when the cams came out, but again, there may be more details here so let me ask you this about, about the chauvin case one of the the questions that still lingers over it is is what happens now and what do you make of the prospects of uh, of appeal there's some people who are saying, well, you know the maxine waters uh, comments or joe biden 's comments might be grounds for a uh, for an appellate court to to throw out the verdict. What do you think?
1: Well... I mean, grounds for an appeal are different from a basis for reversing the verdict. Mm So, you know, there'll be many. There will be an appeal, and there's going to be a number of issues on appeal, including that they didn't sequester the jury because there was a motion for that earlier. Including that they didn't move venue to get it out of Minneapolis. um, Including comments that that the that the defense lawyers objected to by prosecutor Jerry Blackwell, saying that they were they were biased. um, potentially Mm -hmm. biasing the jury. I think the, the, uh, the Maxine Waters argument is, is, is not going to fly anywhere. I mean, the notion that after three weeks of testimony, the jurors who are supposed to, they were directed to not pay attention to the news, unless there's some proof that they did pay attention to the news, uh, the law treats it as if the jurors followed the instructions of the judge. And the notion that they'd somehow listen to a member of Congress rather than the three, three weeks of testimony they had just slogged through, to me, that's just not realistic. I mean, the, and, you know, Charlie, I what's amazing that about this this trial and this conversation really is is the facts of this case and i told my students like this is a moment to feel good not and and, and i separating mm-hmm. the race piece i mean i think that's important but this is a moment to feel good about the american judicial system because the facts and the law carried the day here mm-hmm. it wasn't about politics and why because even if in the beginning of the video he was acting off, right? So many police officers might, and pedestrians might watch that and say, okay, George Floyd was potentially menacing. He was acting a little odd. They took steps to manage the situation. When he no longer had a pulse, when he no longer had a pulse, there, there was no version of reasonable use of force after that. Um, zero. And even the defense lawyer's top you know, expert on um, on cause of death said that or actually I'm sorry it was on police reasonable use of police force said that as a physician he would have he thought it was a mistake to not give him medical attention in that moment there was no you know what i'm saying there was no yes. alternative version after he lost his pulse and i think that 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 is what's going to carry the day on appeal
0: so you, you mentioned one thing that's been nagging at the back of my mind uh, as, as I watched this, the decision not to sequester the jury. If, if there was ever a case that would call for sequestration, it would seem to be something like this. So what was your take and your reaction to the judge's decision not to sequester the jury?
1: You know, it's expensive to sequester the jury. It's um, it's really trying on their families. Uh, so I I wasn't that you know, I mean, it's unusual. So, you know, but what's interesting is that, that he didn't do that, but at the same time made the comment about, you know, how politicians shouldn't be talking. And I thought that was, uh, I mean, the jury probably heard that. So I I don't know. I mean, the judge isn't a tough spot that's a really hard job prosecutors defense lawyers it's really easy to second guess those decisions um, i think they all overall did very very professional jobs in this trial and again i think this is a moment setting aside race which is i'm not denying is a really really big problem in policing but this is a moment where the american justice system worked and and what i t- point out to my students charlie is that unlike politicians unlike cable news tucker carlson you know ron johnson all these people the lies the big lie the january 6th Courts are bound by rules. They're bound by evidentiary rules, procedural rules. So it doesn't matter what your politics are when you get in court. Judges can't, can't, Color outside the lines around politics and ideology, or they get they get whooped by the appellate court. Um, lawyers can't color outside the lines; they get whooped by the judge. And to me, that in this cacophony of bad information and lies, it's like a place to exhale. And I thought that it's it's a good uh, good thing for Americans to strive for for across our public discourse.
0: No, um, I, I I think the, the the yes exhaling does describe. I think the reaction here. You know, the problem is is the juries can be. They can be crazy. Uh, juries can engage in uh, nullification. Uh, so, and the and the juries, you know, are drawn from the pool of of American citizens. And to the, the extent to which Americans no longer are facts fact based, um, you know, could potentially impact some of these decisions. But you're absolutely right. This this was good news. Okay, let's switch back to democracy for a moment because you've written very extensively on voting rights and on on elections. Uh let's talk about HR1 the 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 status of HR1. I see today that the congressional black caucus is saying hey maybe we ought to shift our focus uh to the uh to the John Lewis bill which is more narrowly focused on voting rights particularly involving African Americans as opposed to HR1 which is sprawling and goes on for hundreds of pages and doesn't seem to be going anywhere right now. So give me your sense of of that, Because I mean, I, I've, I thought it was, I personally have thought it was inevitable that sooner or later the, the attention was going to come back to the John Lewis bill because I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily optimistic, but that's a much harder, um, uh, uh no vote for some Republicans. It doesn't mean they won't do it, but I do think it's a, it's a harder no vote. Your thoughts?
1: Well, I, I, You know, given what we talked about at the top of the show, that it looks like the Republican strategy for staying in power is to sort of strong arm their way and not necessarily do it based on issues, I'm a little skeptical that any version of national legislation that's going to increase access to the polls for people is going to be palatable to the Republican Party, particularly given that, as you know, last check, the Brennan Center for Justice had, you know, 250 plus bills across the country to suppress the vote. that being said, um, you know the 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 HR one does include also stuff around campaign finance, um, and that's a really tricky issue, and that's different from common sense reforms to to get to increase access to the ballot, um, and then of course, you know the The Shelby County versus Holder, twenty thirteen, part of the, the Voting Rights Act that that is that is something the Supreme Court sent back to the to the Congress to fix. And just for the listeners who don't mm-hmm. don't know that piece, essentially, um, that the statute was passed in in the nineteen sixties because, notwithstanding the Fifteenth Amendment that gave African American males a right to vote, and uh, that that's some states were doing these what we're talking about now, these suppression efforts, and get you know lit, you know. Literacy tests, things like that, and even you know counting the number of uh, b- bubbles in a bar of soap to basically manufacture justifications to keep people from the polls. And so Congress passed a statute telling, saying, "Listen, if before you do get cute and change your rules, you've got to run it by DOJ." Right. And that worked tremendously well until the Supreme Court struck it down in 2013. Justice uh, Ginsburg famously dissented and said, "It's like saying, you know, my umbrella is working so well in this rainstorm, so I'm going to throw my umbrella out." Um, um, you know, it was working really, really well. And so that piece does need to be put back in place. But again, Charlie, you know, all of this stuff, I just think the writing's on the wall that that we're, we're in a pitch battle for we the people deciding our own electors with one party saying, I don't want people deciding, and the other party still committed to democratic values. And, the, and I mean that, you know, democratic, republican values, like the constitutional values, not party values. So, so I'm skeptical anything will get passed without either, killing the filibuster or doing it through or amending the filibuster or doing it through appropriations where the Democrats only need a a bare majority.
0: So I I know this is repetitive for listeners of the podcast, but I just want to remind people that when the Voting Rights Act was uh, originally passed back in 1965, it was passed with an overwhelming bipartisan vote. One of the co-sponsors was the Republican Senate leader, Everett Dirksen. When it was reauthorized during the Bush years, I think the vote was unanimous and it was signed by a Republican president, George Bush. And yet here we are with being very unclear whether there will be much, if any, Republican support for um, restoring voting rights and, and you know, the, the John Lewis uh, bill. My, my only question about the John Lewis bill is whether or not it uh, could be made to apply to all the states rather than just the southern states.
1: Well, the you know, I, don't, I haven't studied the sort of details yeah. on how they're amending the formula, but under the original act, basically there was a formula that was applied to decide – which states are bad actor states. And it wasn't just Southern states. I mean, there were Northern states as Mm. well and uh, that were basically based on the statistics, were determined to be out of whack in terms of access to the polls for certain communities. And after 1965, I mean, the numbers of African Americans, you know, just surged in these states actually having access to the ballot. So even the conservatives on the court in Shelby County said, listen, this is a, a spectacularly successful piece of legislation, which, as you mentioned, passed multiple uh, Congresses, not just once, but multiple reenactments by Congresses and, in, in, you know, uh, uh, bipartisans in the, you know, cons- uh, votes in the high 90s. So, I mean, what's interesting to me about this discussion, and I know we don't probably have time for it, is to talk about the United States Supreme Court and the fact that the court stepped in and silenced the legislature in that regard. And And, hmm. and uh, hmm. a lot of what we're talking about here, you know, protests, First Amendment stuff, um, voting rights. All of this is going to go to five people that are unelected and are there for life on the U.S. Supreme Court to basically decide. And I'm really hoping that conservative principles carry the day with this court because, you know, conservative jurists tend to say, listen, stuff should be done in Congress. It should be the people that vote. It should be people the people that decide. And so it really sticks in my craw when the Supreme Court jumps in and on shady or I should say shaky, not shady, Shake, shaky ground strikes down an act of Congress that had such bipartisan support for so many years.
0: And you kind of wonder whether or not uh, the chief justice might be having second thoughts about the role that he played in that. You'd like to think so, maybe?
1: Yeah. I mean, the chief justice it seems that he um i mean they made a bunch of mistakes they made a mistake with citizens united in allowing unlimited money uh, i read recently that you know a huge proportion of of money that's in politics are from like a handful of billionaires in america on both sides of the political spectrum i mean it's just it's really amazing and that is giving corporations first amendment rights in in citizens united um the, there were no corporations when the Constitution was was ratified. Uh, so the notion that these fictions that are clicks on a of a mouse now—they're not even actual pieces of paper. They're like leprechauns, legal leprechauns that are created to minimize liability. Um, that they have First Amendment rights like living, breathing people. I mean, I, it's it just does it defies logic from a very conservative textualist originalist standpoint. But I agree with you, Charlie. I think uh, he's worried about the Supreme Court's legacy. He's worried about the Supreme Court's legitimacy, and he should be. Um, I mean, Mitch McConnell really did a did a did a tap dance on that with the with the three justices that are now now sitting um, with with not any Democratic support. Um, that's Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. I think that's co- corroded and eroded the institution, and so a lot is riding on these justices to not. Um, to not step outside their limited role going forward and get people upset um, and represent all Americans, Charlie.
0: Well, and, and there is all of this talk about court packing. I personally don't think that it's going anywhere. I think that the uh, the Democratic leadership does not want to do that. I don't think Joe Biden wants to do it. However, there is a commission. So it is sort of like they've taken out the gun and they've put it on the table. It may not be loaded but it's there. So does that focus the minds of the justices Are they looking over their shoulder, thinking sure. that, uh, well, this is, this is this threats out there. I mean, I remember, I remember the famous story from the 1930s, of course, you know, when, right. when Franklin Roosevelt tried to pack the court, he failed spectacularly, but the court then began to rule in a rather different way after that. And of course, you know, there's, you know, a lot of people who believe that the, the court, uh, the court was responding to that threat. So, what do you
1: right. think? Right. So, do you think it'll yeah. So, so just to give a, for an example, so you know, FDR comes in and he does a New Deal, lots of legislation and expansion of the administrative state, you know, regulators, which now a lot of people really resent. Uh, and the Supreme Court started striking down a lot of that legislation on these old kind of arcane doctrines, like saying, for example, agencies shouldn't be passing regulations. That's for Congress. It's known as the non-delegation doctrine. Mm-hmm. So they. It was like one historian likened it to a Shakespearean tragedy, right, where everyone gets killed by the end and and the dead people on the stage were the New Deal programs. And then with this court-packing threat, they did back off. And we haven't seen that kind of use of these doctrines since the 1930s. Like non-delegation, for example, has been brought up and up and up. And even a conservative court has said, no, we're not going to touch Agencies, so that's possible. But I also just wonder, though, Charlie, with the midterms coming up and this election, and the Democrats holding both houses by a by a you know a thread, thread of a thread of a thread, uh, that even having a court packing commission could bring people out to vote um, to shift the shift the House and the and or the Senate to the Republican side of the aisle, um, which would be you know which would be a huge price to pay for a shot across the bow to uh, for just. Or, four justices on the Supreme Court if we include Justice Roberts as as really kind of a moderate at this point.
0: Kim Willey, thank you so much for uh, joining me. Uh, you, can, you can find uh, Kim's books, What You Need to Know About Voting and Why and How to Read the Constitution and Why. They're both in paperback. Uh, Kim, uh, always great to have you on the podcast.
1: Oh, always great to be here. And I have a new one coming out, Charlie, in February, How to Think Like a Lawyer and Why, so we can keep this conversation going.
0: You got you got a theme there going, don't you? <laughs> yes. I, I, I Yes,
1: think for yourselves, friends. That's I'm, that's the deal. I'm, don't listen I'm, I, to me.
0: I, well, I'm think about the pattern, the whole and, and why and why you'd want to do this. Because I, you it, know,
1: that's it, right, Charlie? If you understand the why, you understand the what and you get to make the decisions for yourself and not listen to people like you and me as much as we like to talk.
0: You, you know, it's funny. You should mention that. I mean, to bring that up because um, there was once a time in my life when I was sort of addicted to asking the question, "Why?" You know, just I mean, when when somebody would say, "Like, well, why would I want to do that?" Or why? And and as, as I, I I thought of it as just kind of an, an opening to you know get deeper into an issue, and and then I would find out whether or not you know somebody had really thought something through. Because, but what I found was that. A lot of people found it very challenging to be asked why. Why would I want to do that? And I'm afraid I, I, um, I went through a number of friendships by asking questions like that. And I so. I, did you
1: drive your parents crazy, too? We all know that, right? The kid's like, why? Oh, well, well, of why course. do I need to go to bed at 8 o'clock?
0: <laughs> but see, my, my parents and I, we, we were we were into debating and arguing about stuff like that all the time. So that that was okay. What I found was that when I left home and tried the same tactics with civilians, it, well, it did not always work.
1: I mean, Charlie, even in law school, I've had students that, that – feel silence. They're worried that if they ask the hard questions, they'll be judged. They'll be ostracized. They'll be canceled or whatever the yeah. words are. Uh, and and we just have to be open-minded and tolerant with each other as we learn. So I do think the and why is, the, is a critical I think so. uh, step towards maybe in all this darkness we've been talking about, maybe finding some light um, that will shine on democracy. <laughs> if we can have real conversations about real issues where we tolerate people's need to learn.
0: Well, if people are, are are worried about those invisible tripwires, try this. This is this is an interesting tool. Just to say, you know, um, you know, m- you know, Mr. Teacher, why why should I say this? Why are you saying that without committing yourself, but just requiring them to elucidate and maybe reveal whether or not they have any idea what they're talking about? Kim Willey, again, uh, thanks for joining uh, me on the podcast, and thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. And we'll do this all over again.